This is Toxin Philia to me. We're and, talking about eggshells. And I am Julie Kearns, and this I, is... I, I am Aaron Dylan Kearns. You refer to me as this is, like I'm some kind of creature. But and you the, found it at the bottom the of like a sewer. And the individual sitting to my left is my son, Aaron, Aaron Dylan, Dylan Kearns. Kearns. I already Kearns. said it, though. We had planned to talk about two very beautiful, wonderful films. We decided not to do that because you were all Benadrilled out. You didn't feel like doing it. So I said, well, mm -hmm. let's think of something else. Let's think of something that is lighter fare. The two other films we were going to talk about have a lot of history behind them. And we would be going really in depth into those two things. And I gave multiple ideas. And... You somehow don't remember any of the films. You don't remember Robot Monster. I don't know how you forget Robot Monster. No, I don't remember Robot Monster. So I suggested, since the whole Pentagon thing with the, uh, with the UFOs, I suggested, well, why don't we do Close Encounters of the Third Kind? And you said... Well, the thing is, when we were talking about doing a podcast eventually on perspectives regarding modern film industry with mainstream studios and Disney and stuff like that, one of the things I really dislike about that sort of stuff, which Spielberg just completely banks on, is audience manipulation and just completely one-sided storytelling. I was going to say that you've started to go really broad there, attacking the whole commercial film industry, rather than just saying, I don't like Spielberg's films. Well, and it's I a had... thing that's prevalent through many larger mainstream films, like sort of Spielbergian influence in regards to very one-sided, dimensionless characters, how manipulated the viewer is to only feel certain emotions. Oh, but there's a lot of fun stuff in Close Encounters. I understand what you're saying as far as feeling like your emotions are manipulated by Spielberg, and that's been a long time complaint against him. You're not the only person who feels that way. Yeah. I feel that way to a certain extent as well, but Close Encounters is fun. So we talked about maybe doing Close Encounters, and then you started talking about Poltergeist. Because who... that's a film where it just especially hit me, because... Toby Hooper supposedly directed that film, but from what I knew of Toby Hooper, it felt nothing like Toby Hooper. It felt like Spielberg, and it had all the things I don't like about Spielberg in it. Yes, but as it turns out, all you knew about Toby Hooper was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Original so, 1974 version. So you said, let's do the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. For the sake of comparison. And Close Encounters and Poltergeist. And I said, well... I haven't watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a while. I will watch it again, and we will do that. But Close Encounters is not going to fit. We're going to have to move that to another podcast. So we will instead talk mainly about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and some about Poltergeist and about several films of his that we hadn't watched before. Toby Hooper is a little bag of surprises once, oh, he's a, yeah, once you get to the films that fun. he did before... Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's a little bit of a bundle of shockers. Oh, it was fun. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I want to say, is a film that... 1974, what? before slasher stuff was implemented. It was the first considered gore film, even though it doesn't show that much gore. No, actually, first Slash gore movie would be Herschel Gordon Lewis, because he did Blood Feast and Wizard of Gore and stuff like that. He would technically be the first... When were those? Oh, Blood Feast was like 60, sometime in the 60s. 
And Wizard of Gore was from 1970. Have I watched those and I just don't remember it? You I'm probably not... have because Herschel Gordon Lewis, he's very tongue-in-cheek. He's the guy who John Waters parodied in Multiple Maniacs. He also did, I think it was, uh, I forgot how many Maniacs. It was like something Thousand Maniacs. Two Thousand Maniacs. Color Me Blood Red. He was sort of like Roger Corman doing his low-budget stuff, which was like more offbeat weird quirky horror comedy of like little shop of horrors and then he had herschel gordon lewis from his little studio making gore with strawberry jam and stuff like that mm -hmm. blood feast is the dumbest thing ever and it's kind of hilarious and i suggested that we do an episode on blood feast but you somehow also don't remember it or you've never seen it no which I... you're missing out <laughs> two seconds in and i would be able to tell if i had seen it or not and I oh would you would know with the main villain in that film. He's like a villain from Courage the Cowardly Dog. It's hilarious. I love Courage the Cowardly Dog. The main villain's name is literally Fwad Ramses. I don't remember that name at all. Oh, it's weird. Are we going to talk about Herschel Gordon Lewis today? Or are we going to talk <laughs> Texas about... Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We're talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre today. I wanted to say that I did not watch that film purposefully. I stayed away from it until, what, a couple of years ago? I don't know. Maybe a little bit longer than that. It was fairly recently. I heard it was gore. I did not want to see it. I figured I would be revolted by it. I thought, I'm not a big horror fan. There are certain kinds of horror that I do like. There are certain horror films I've really enjoyed. I love some of the old 1960s stuff. I like my horror to be a little thoughtful or to be... Hey, I'm, listen, here's the thing, you know. I, I hate slashers. I think slashers are... Dumbest thing ever, you know? Mm -hmm. Slashers, specifically, are stuff like Friday the 13th. Thing is, with those kinds of films, they're complete cash grabs. Well, Friday the 13th, they started advertising that film before they even wrote a script for it. Mm -hmm. They didn't even know what the movie would be about. Really? If, yes. That, that's okay. actually a fact. So, if that doesn't epitomize what slasher stuff generally is, I like ever stuff. You know, giallos, which are... People sometimes confuse them with slashers, but giallos are different that they're... Well, describe them for people who don't know what... Giallos, they're those Italian horror things like Suspiria and... And that's one that I did not watch forever. You finally convinced me to watch it, and I really enjoyed it. And after all the years of you giving me the word I can't say for liking <laughs> Goblin... Yeah. Well, I don't... Yeah, I have to say, we, we have our differences. I don't care for Goblin. You also don't like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. No, I do not. You, you gave me the word I can't say for always being like, dude, Suspiria is great, Goblin's fantastic, and you're like, oh, it's stupid. I never said it was stupid, because I had never <laughs> seen it. It was, it was just like I was not interested. Um, and when I finally sat you down, you were like, okay, Goblin is good. Yeah, I was going to say, in the context of a movie, you still... For Suspiria, yes. It worked. Do you want to talk about Suspiria one day, but not today? Shall we move? Oh, there's not really that much depth in the movie, really. I mean, it's really just the album of visuals, you know, by like. Well, care. yeah, we can talk about the visuals and, and how they were never matched again. That was just. Oh, well, Dario Argento, he was able to recreate the visuals. It's just that he didn't have his dad writing his films for him after Suspiria, so yeah, he got kind of screwed after there. After I watched Suspiria, I thought, oh, what have I been missing? So I went and watched some of his other films, and it was like I wasn't missing anything else. It was Suspiria was it. Once you make it to Mother of Tears, you know you're kind of in a bad spot. Anyway, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I did not watch that film. 
I did not watch it. I did not watch it. And I cannot remember what finally, okay, I will go ahead and watch it several years ago. And I was surprised by it. It, it was, was actually a romantic it was comedy. Good. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had no idea. It was a romantic comedy star, oh. starring Alan Smithy. <laughs> My, yeah. I cried at the end. It was just, it, it really was a tearjerker. It, it got was, me. It was James Cameron's best film, <laughs> The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I was surprised that it was not gore. It was disturbing. I know that several years ago when I saw it, I think what it was, this time, because I watched it again last night, I felt like I was able to absorb more about it. The first time I watched it, I was more that I was surprised at the gore that it didn't show. What I was expecting was not there. Mm -hmm. This time, I had a chance to kind of really see what was there as opposed to what wasn't there. It is a disturbing film. It really is very creepy, and I realized watching Toby Hooper's other films, one reason I find it so creepy, it opens with a lot of bad news. Well, what? You're looking at me. <laughs> That's just the weirdest way to phrase it. A lot of bad news. He's got that, and then he got the dead body, but slowly propped up in some kind of statue of corpses. But that, okay, see, that's the thing, is it doesn't go straight to the cemetery. It doesn't go straight to the bazaar. Mm -hmm. It opens with, well, it does. It has film of still photographs being taken, and yes, it does open with that before it gets into the bad news stuff. It's a good image. It's everyday violence that it opens with. You've got the news about oil storage units burning out of control in Texas and people killed at the oil refineries. You've got imagery of solar flares. I don't know what those exactly are. Well, there's the one girl who was like... Yeah, there's the astrology thing. But the solar flares, the violence of those spiraling out of the sun. It looked like the opening to Sunspots, that one Giallo film. While those solar flares are being shown, you've got news of suicides. They may have once had lore that more suicides happened when there were solar flares. There was an Italian film from the 70s called Sunspots, which was one of those giallo films. The setup of it was that there was a solar incident that caused people across Italy to kill themselves. It's technically one of the more shocking openings you could have for a giallo because it's the Sunspots, but then you have an order of images. It was, you had a guy who put a plastic bag over his head and jumped into a lake, a guy in a car who set himself on fire with the car, and a guy who kills his whole family at gunpoint before shooting himself. It is one of the most bizarre and whiplash-inducing openings you can have for one of those movies. There is that weird sort of connection between solar flares and suicides, apparently. And it's described as being... A well, you were talking about sunspots. There's a difference Oh, between... I mean solar flares. No, it's called sunspots, but supposedly solar flares are causing the thing to happen in the film. Why do they call it sunspots? In America, it's called autopsy, so they definitely didn't put that much thought into the title. And there's news also about a building in Atlanta collapsing due, due to sabotage. And Now, this didn't happen. The movie opens with the announcement that everything that you see... Is based on a true story. story. As much of a true story as the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> the film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular... Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. 
It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's a weird way of saying this film was written by Kim Hinkle. <laughs> and Kim Hinkle wrote the story. And Kim Hinkle uh, was also in Eggshells as toes what a name what i think is funny is there was technically an actual horror story behind texas chainsaw massacre but it's more or less about the filming of the movie than uh, well they had a very difficult time filming the movie yeah. because it was it was wretchedly hot and they very were, shoestring budget they were in texas and it was terribly hot and they were surrounded by animal parts and it stunk well you are they're probably doing their own stunts no, the woman who went through the window, she did not go through the window, but she did run through all the brambles herself, and she got cut up from that. I think they did actually have to cut for some of the scenes of, like, the knives and stuff when um, they cut her finger a little bit so the grandfather would drink from the blood. It opens with news about protests and about child abuse, about this girl locked in an attic. So you've got this horrible everyday news drawn upon that goes around in the world preceding these terrible events that are fiction. Also preceding the terrible events that are fiction, you've got the sociological element driving through Texas. They're going to a cemetery where there has been vandalism. There is Franklin Wheelchair and his, guy. his sister Sally. And there is Kirk. The guy driving the car. And Jerry and Pam. So five people. Got the whole mystery gang. Yeah, well, you kept talking about them being like Scooby-Doo. Just for some reason, it always happens with me whenever I see these horror films that have a cast probably of young adults to teenagers. That Scooby-Doo instinct just sort of slightly creeps into the back of the mind. You get the feeling immediately of just how hot and wretched Oh, Texas you can smell the body odor from the film screen. That in itself is traumatic. They go to the cemetery because there's been vandalism, and they leave it, and they're going to go see the old family homestead. Even though their last name is Hardesty, they refer to it as the Franklin home. They pass by foul-smelling old slaughterhouse, and they talk about how animals used to be slaughtered there. Then they find that one crazy dude. How that has changed. They used to hit the cattle over the head, and now instead they use an air gun. And I think even Franklin was talking about their grandfather. Did he say their grandfather worked there? I think so. Yeah, yeah, he did because he brought it up several times. He brought it up when they picked up the hitchhiker. Well, the hitchhiker himself worked there. That's where he got the photos from. The whole idea with that is that they have been put out of work since they use the air guns now. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've got these people who used to work at the slaughterhouse who have been put out of work. Speaking of the hitchhiker... Well, see, that's just the thing, is that it's already uncomfortable enough in Texas. People who live in Texas, yes, I know... <laughs> you have good chili. I'm not, I'm not... It's just if you're not from Texas and you don't love Texas, it can be a brutal drive 
through there. So this this thing is beautifully filmed. It really is. The long shot that they have of the van slowing to the stop and the hitchhiker running up. So you don't see him immediately. You see him from long, far away of his running up and getting into the van. That kind of repulsed me as far as they're doing immediately. The bad guy is obviously the bad guy. <laughs> I mean, really. He's a weirdo. Yeah, to say the least. Well, I mean, that's where it was a little bit more of just like a goofier horror film when you just have the hitchhiker be picked up and he's immediately talking about, you know how they make head cheese? Let me tell you about head cheese. They take the head. He's grotesque. Mm -hmm. Everybody that they meet is grotesque because they're all involved except for the guy who cleans the windows of the van. He's not involved. Things... The bell bottoms. Those were grotesque. Okay. So the hitchhiker, he behaves bizarrely. He ends up taking a picture of Franklin. When Franklin doesn't pay him for it, he sets the picture on fire. Evan stabs right into his arm. Yeah, Franklin's arm. So they stop and kind of push him out of the van. It's like, oh, and he also cuts his own hand, too. You yes, remember? but that's the very first thing he did. Yeah. And they should have said, okay, I think we should stop and let you out here. He's like, no, come to my house. Come to my house. He's like, no, we're not going to come to your house. We're going to have a whole family dinner. No, that's all right. No, thank you. They're running out of gas, of course, and they stop at the gas station, and they are talking about going to the Franklin homestead, and they're warned away from it. And, of course, the gas station doesn't have gas. They go back to the Franklin homestead anyway. Cause the scariest part is they're playing country music fair. Every bit of it is unsettling. And I'll tell you one reason why it's unsettling. It's because mid-1970s, if you drove out to the country, there were places that were like that where you'd meet the owner of the gas station and... You'd be thoroughly creeped out, and you might have something. I mean, I had creepy things happen. It was scary, especially if back in the mid-'70s. If you dressed a certain way, if you looked counterculture, it could be dangerous outside of the city. It could be dangerous anyway. I, You know, I had things happen that were very disturbing, very frightening. So that's one reason it's kind of unsettling is because I remember going into gas stations and having bizarre things happen. That's the thing is I kind of felt like why bother to have the hitchhiker be so over the top when... The thing that's scary about the gas station guy is he's the kind of person where you would actually know someone like him. This is what I'm saying as far as running up against somebody like that. The aggression against counterculture, the hatred for it it's supposed to be 1973 in this film and you get already the sense of what made counterculture counterculture already kind of dying you feel that it may be just from my early teenage years as far as attire and other things where it's not the same what was has passed and you're on the rear end of it even though the vietnam war has not ended yet you wouldn't know about this because I wasn't it's alive. <laughs> you're, you're talking to me about it like I was there. I know. I, I wasn't even a thought back then. I was probably just like, I was probably like on the other side of the universe, like as some kind of floating sea sponge or something. This is one thing I want to get into is with his other films, you end up getting the timeline that takes you through counterculture to this other side, but you get the other side, which is already happening while the major counterculture movement is going on. You're in the thick of it. 
you get the darkness underneath it. There was darkness there. There was plenty of misogyny there. And he addresses this in Eggshells. He does it pretty directly. He does it several times. I'm aware of this because of what it was like growing up looking at other people I knew, their older brothers and their older sisters who were counterculture and who were in protests. They were involved in different things. You saw it on the news. At least I did. It was like a great anticipation of what you could be doing when you were older, but you were too young. People who were just a few years older than you were making a difference, or so it felt like. They were making a difference. They were out protesting. It wasn't just drugs and everything else. Everyone had drugs. It was civil rights and protesting against the war. Then all of that started to decay and die. And you guys got disco instead. And we got disco instead. By the time <laughs> we were old enough to do anything, at least in certain areas, I'm not saying it was like that everywhere, but in certain areas it had completely dried up and people had gone on to disco. Disco and backgammon. But there was also the disillusionment of being around some of these people. I was around people who had parents who were counterculture. It felt like they had been through it, and now they were getting away from it. They were leaving that behind. They were moving back into certain middle-class kinds of values. So I had been around this, and I was as counterculture as you could be for a certain age. I got in a lot of trouble for it at school. When you got around groups of it, where it was more a collective, there was a lot of misogyny there. You felt like it should be progressive, and it wasn't as far as women were concerned. It really wasn't that progressive. As in eggshells, Toby Hooper did eggshells back in 1969. It's a fascinating film. It is a total hippie film. You have the women, they do the cooking, they do the cleaning, they do the taking care of, they do all of that, and they talk about it. This one female character, she talks about it. She says, I do everything for you. And that's the way it was. Women were expected to be a certain way by a lot of men back then, a lot of young men, men who should have known better. They were young enough, they should have known better, and that's still how they treated women. Mm -hmm. Not all of them. I'm not talking everyone, but there was still that going on. And a lot of sexual assault and abuse as well. They were still sexual objects. I don't feel that going on with the men towards the women. Well, that's one of the things I was kind of relieved about in regards to the film. One of the things that especially just burdens later horror films is the fact that there's sort of like the little morale play going on. It's especially prevalent in slashers where you have the teenagers doing premarital sex, and so the boogeyman comes and kills them. Oh, but that's always been, that's one of the functions of horror film. I'm talking about in the relationships between the people in the van, they actually don't have much going on except it's hot. It's Texas. Let's get where we're going to go. They just oh, can't we stay can't each get other in there. General. We don't have gas. We're irritated. Yeah. They're just short tempered. Basically, they're short tempered because it's hot and they're irritated. And you've got a brother and sister dynamic going on between Franklin and Sally where they're just kind of irritated with each other because they're brother and sister. So that is one thing. There's that... a special little standout moment where um they eventually make it to the house. They go back from the gas station. They don't get the gas because it's not available. They say you can wait for the gas truck, but they don't wait. 
and they go back to see the Franklin homestead. You've got the two that want to go out, and they want to go to the swimming hole. I wasn't even going to mention that. I was going to talk about um, when... Uh, when they got out, there was that huge thing of blood that was just left on the side of their van from when they kicked oh, out the guy. They leave Franklin behind at the van to clean it off. He's just completely ticked off. He hates everyone at that moment just because he's out in the hot sun. And they're all inside of the house, like, having a ball, looking at these abandoned, torn well, down rooms. And he... I, well, that's not it. Also, Franklin's in the wheelchair. He yeah. has limited mobility as far as getting around because you don't have wheelchair access through oh. the wood. The woods yeah. are not wheel- wheelchair access. You don't have ramps or anything like that, of course. And so yeah. he's irritated because he's having a difficult time getting around. Well, that's understandable. I was just going to mention one little bit where he mockingly imitates his sister when she's laughing throughout her rooms. And she's his sister. That was just for some reason one of the moments between the characters in the film that especially stood out to me. I don't know why, but I just sort of did like him in this almost completely black room doing like this weird mocking cartoonish laugh mm-hmm. where you have the laugh reverberating just above him. Okay, well let me ask you a question. What do you feel about Franklin and his knife? You've got the nutty family that we'll be meeting up with that we've already met the hitchhiker. Why put Franklin there as being obsessed with his knife where even his sister takes it from him because he starts stabbing at the inside of the van with it, remember? Yeah. Poking at the van, the walls of the van, and she takes the knife and she puts it up and then he gets upset with her later. It's like, where's my knife? Give me back my knife. And she can't find it. So why do you think you're talking about that if you're keyed into... Franklin being upset with his sister. What do you think about the whole detail of the knife? They have right next to their uh, house the crazy Loverface family. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just like a little neighborly thing. You know, they all have their little knife activities, knifing around, you know. That's a question that I have as far as very early in the film, is when they're in the van and he's playing around with the knife and there's the, all that. That never is really built upon. The thing with the sister To me, that's just kind of like siblings have been around each other for years. They get upset with each other. They know each other too well. She has no idea that he's downstairs mocking her and making fun of her. Nobody does. By the time they come back downstairs, he's pulled it together. He doesn't want people to see his bitterness. And he is bitter. Mm Mm-hmm. He's bitter because he can't get around like they do. I t- totally understand that. Oh, no, I just meant like it was a moment like between the characters that especially stood out to me. Well, that's what I'm asking because I don't know why they put that in there except just to have a kind of normal sibling relationship and also having Franklin just be just normal irritation as far as trying to get around. But the knife, yeah, the knife in the van and she, she takes the knife and then he wants the knife back and they argue about it because she's irritated and she's like, okay, I'll look for it, but then she can't find it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And they never do. That's the end of that. Anyway, so you have Kirk and Pam, they go off and they are on their way down to the swimming hole and instead they hear a generator. Where a generator is, there's gas. So they go in pursuit of the sound, and they see a bunch of cars that are hidden under a camouflage canopy. They don't think anything about this. 
they just continue on. Just one thing also, this film has great location shots. And they get to this White House. Not the White House, just a White House. Although, they, it'll be scary right now for them also if they just went to the White looks, House as it is currently. And it looks perfectly normal outside. The characters don't look normal but yeah. <laughs> that live there, but the house looks perfectly normal. It strongly resembles the hippie house in eggshells. That long front porch, the kind of arrangement of the facade is much the same. Some of the rooms inside are reminiscent. Kirk goes inside and is immediately confronted with animal parts everywhere. Animal skins on the walls, animal skulls. The best part of it is, you know, when you go in, there's a stairwell, but then there's also a doorway that I think leads to where one of the guest bedrooms would be. But that hallway, bright red wall, lined with animal skulls. It's like the most Arizona-looking thing you could ever see in your life. That's true. It's art. This is what is weird about it, too, is that... Originally, when they get to the cemetery, you had this art piece there where it's a horrible collection of corpses just piled up of things jammed together where it's art. It's death art. Did it really register in 1974 that this was not just grotesque, that this was art? Morbid pe- sculpture. Morbid sculpture. Were people doing? Were people doing morbid sculptures? People have always done taxidermy, but that was not weird things all Francis pieced Bacon, together. But not a sculpture. When we went to the Franklin House, he also had the bag of bones. And the thing is, is that what you're thinking about all the time is that, like when they were passing by the slaughterhouse, Toby Hooper inserted images of just cows not being killed, but you got the sense of like, that is the thing that's just great about this movie. You don't see That's anything, true. and your mind That's just true. fills in all of these I, dark, horrible Because actually images. what you just see is you see, I remember you see the cow with its head hanging down, and you get the sense that the cow is about to be killed. You get the sense of distress. That is the thing that is just incredible about this film, and I may as well just say it now. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is completely separate from any other genre horror film, because it's technically, you know, people see it as a genre horror film. But it has a very unique atmosphere in the fact that it doesn't show anything. And, you know, there's a whole infamous story about how censors, they went through a movie after finding that it was too disturbing to distribute, but they couldn't find anything to cut. That's the thing about the movie. They don't show anything, but it still just fills in your mind with these horrible, messed up images. Well, I suppose you could say that, in a way, what made it X-rated, because it did get an X rating. Yeah was the morbid sculpture throughout. (laughs) I mean, the bones, bones, bones. You see a couple of body parts at one point. Mm -hmm. But you don't even get a lot of that. Remember when she's sitting in the chair eventually and she's got the two arms under her where you've got Mm -hmm. the, the arms of the chair, which are literally arms underneath her arms. You remember the sofa with the bones in it. You also have the ominous inclusion of the sausage on the plate. That makes you go oh oh that's right because they have the barbecue at the gas station and you're immediately when they're eating the barbecue it's like okay we don't know about this but then we already know it's texas chainsaw massacre and it's like barbecue is not a good idea it's just like you look at the sausage and you go oh don't want to think about that so uh, the thing is is that what you're thinking about already with all the bones it sets it up before the killings start happening you're already thinking about death humans Animals. Slaughtering. Cattle. The humans likened to cattle 
and the cattle likened to humans makes you want to go vegetarian at some point, perhaps. <laughs> We're going to go into that because there's an interesting little twist about the style of the film that we'll go into later on, which completely changes context about the film. You're already thinking about animal life, and you're thinking yeah. about the value of life and equitability, also about the inevitability of death, how death infuses everything. Death surrounds one. Everything is built on death. Death is behind everything the land that you build your house on there's death involved from colonialism and imperialism and taking the land there's death in industry it's capitalism you get all this capitalism it's this consumer versus the consumed that is throughout the film. I consider like the last 20 minutes of a film to essentially be like the big panic attack moment but you have the crazy family, the Leatherface family, their main thing essentially is they're keeping the grandfather alive, who is at this point almost like a vampire. The first thing they do is they cut the sister's finger and they feed her blood to the grandfather. Think about capitalism and vampires, you know? Kirk doesn't even get a chance to run away. Just suddenly Leatherface is there and kills him. Pam is sitting outside on the nice swing, swinging back and forth. The thing of Kirk is they filmed his death to exactly resemble when they were talking about hammering the cows over the head. And he's spazzing on, they have to just bash his head in multiple times before eventually Uh sound design the film. I have to just say this for a moment. Because it especially kicks in during the scene. And yes, I did get really hyped during this moment just because of how everything was built up. I love the hammer scene. I, I just say that right now because get the morbid connection where Kurt just immediately turns into like a bit of cattle and Loverface picks him up drags him off and then i can't say i love anything about it and he slams the door shut and then you have this dark ambient drone and especially just sort of highlights there because you get like this really industrial atmosphere to it deal with the sound design is they didn't use any instruments for the film the whole soundtrack is just comprised of clips of slaughterhouse audio and various metal objects like i think they're like a couple of bowls metal sheets knives and stuff like that it's basically proto-industrial dark ambient closest thing i could really think of that is anywhere near like the soundtrack is one half man by how do you pronounce it eisenstein nirboten the german industrial group yeah. it was an album they recorded where they only used power utensils for the instrumentation when i say that i can't love that sound there are things about this movie that are so dark that i can appreciate it for what it is and i can really appreciate the cinematography i can appreciate the timing there's so much that I can't appreciate. It's just so incredibly dark that I would have a hard time saying that I love any part of it. At the same time, it's the kind of thing where two months from now, I might feel differently. I might say, oh yeah, I really love that part. I'm not sure. I don't know if it's a matter partly of mood on a particular day that plays into how I feel about it because that does the mood that you are in on a particular day will affect how you see a film it reminds me of when you were a little boy I remember there was one film in particular 
it scared the hell out of you, even was though it, it was White? a funny, 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 funny film. Queen of Outer Space with Zsa Zsa Gabor. They had a spider in there. There's a confrontation <laughs> with this giant, really lame spider. Are you serious? In a that cave. scared me. And, yeah, and you what? were you were like six years of age or five years of age. We were watching it, and you got scared by the spider. Okay, I'm gonna look and this up now. I got down on the floor with you. I was imitating the spider. I was showing you how the spider wasn't real. I convinced you that it wasn't real, that it was totally fake. It's kind of like that. I know this is fake. Texas Chainsaw Massacre never crosses over into being real to me it never crosses over into that territory and yet it feels so dark that it's a very unsettling film texas chainsaw massacre partially spawned off the whole slasher craze what i wish the genre picked up from it wasn't really the slasher formula because it has traces of the slasher setup in it what i wish the genre picked up instead was the way it handled this malevolent, depraved feeding on the darkest corners of the subconscious atmosphere. Because that's the thing about the film that I just really like. Because the tone of it feels like... And this is a thing that I, I can't say I've experienced beforehand just from doing photo collages. When you see certain crime scene images and your mind fills in what could have happened. And the dark, mm -hmm. dark... Dark images that come to mind that probably have nothing to do with what actually happened. How many times are we going to say dark? Oh, well, with this movie, I think it's quite warranted, you know? Uh, no, I, I, mean, I was joking. I mean, fake or not, you know? I was joking. No synonyms for, for dark, huh? It is so dark. It is so bleak. At the same time, after watching his other films before this, I also can look at it in a different light where it becomes... The darkness is reduced 40%. We've already got Kirk killed, and we've got poor Pam. She was put on a meat hook, and they just shoved her in a freezer afterward. And yet, you don't see it. You don't get any gore. Yes, you see Kirk killed, but there's absolutely no gore. You don't see a single cut on him. You get Pam on the hook and there's no gore it's all left to the imagination left to the imagination jerry decides he wants to go down to the creek and on his way down to the creek he leaves sally behind with her brother and then he starts looking for kirk and pam jerry goes in and he finds her in the freezer he opens the door to the freezer and the first thing she does is just springs out she, before she got on the hook uh, Loverface found her because she went into the room with the feathers and bones well, of her well, and I the chickens and animal skins. That's one thing we also noticed, like the second time. The dead animal skins, I mean, you get those if you're getting leather for crafts and stuff. When you think about this, you've got leather that you wear shoes on your feet. You know, mm -hmm. if you're not vegan, leather coats, your world is surrounded with animal products. It's a warping it's of... Our casual cons consumption. So it feels like that's what that house is. It's all the animal products that go into everything around you are suddenly made visible. The fact of life feeding on life is unavoidable. It's brought out of the woodwork. It's brought out of the horse glue in everything. It's yeah. brought, I mean, it's just surrounding you that life feeds 
on life. Oh, what what difference does it make? You've got the animal skins all over the wall. You've got animal, animal bones and human bones. Well, that's different. You know, <laughs> than, <laughs> except for people dying. So you've got cemeteries and that's the problem is you've got the hitchhikers who is apparently the one who's going around raiding the cemeteries and he's the artist leatherface is the cook so jerry gets killed now sally and franklin are left alone at the van they decide because they don't have keys to drive away they go in pursuit to find people that they really don't you know franklin does not want to do this Franklin's like, no, he wanted to get out of there. Let's go to the gas station, which is not going to be a help because it's part of the whole thing. Yeah. And, of course, you know it's part of the whole thing. It's also at nightfall, too. So they don't give you any time here except for Sally at the very end. Sally runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and runs. Nobody else has a chance to run. Everybody is killed except for poor Pam, who isn't killed, who's stuck in the freezer, who you think of as being dead, but she's not. Franklin is immediately killed. It's a surprise. It's so sudden. Oh, yeah. Loverface just, like, comes out of the... They don't even make it to the house at that point. He literally just comes out of the grass. You don't... They don't even show with Kirk and Franklin. You don't even get a chance to see anybody's face. There's no surprise. You don't see Franklin going, oh, it's because Franklin's immediately dead. Then Sally starts running. Sally runs through the rest of the film, and she screams through the rest of the film. What's interesting to me is apparently they used this film in a sociology test to see about the different reactions. I forget whether it was just the difference between gender reactions as far as uh, perceptions of slasher films. It was noted on Wikipedia that one man described Sally's screaming as the most freaky thing in the film. I wonder what he means by freaky, because what you know what that reminded me of? Hmm. It reminded me of, with The Shining, of how all these men describe how they hate... Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall, because they describe her as screaming all the time, when if you examine it, she doesn't. She hardly screams at all. Mm -hmm. But they think of her as screaming. I don't know whether this person who said that he thought Sally's screaming the most freaky thing in the film, no, not at all. But it's interesting that some man would find it to be the freaky thing. Mm -hmm. This woman screaming from the moment she runs into Leatherface until the very end. Well, she had a reason to scream. Oh, yeah. At times when she was running in the forest, I was thinking the smart thing to do would be to be quiet. Yeah. I know that some people talk about this as being another film where you've got women who do just the wrong thing and are helpless, can't take care of themselves, when it's no... Who's going to be able to take care of themselves in this situation? And Sally does a pretty good job of it. She gets herself out of there. Sally crashes through two windows. She's amazing as far as I'm concerned. So I don't think of these two women as being helpless. For one thing, Pam is never given a chance to be helpless. Her boyfriend has gone inside the house. She goes inside to look for him. Boom, that's it for Pam. She's on the meat hook. She didn't have a chance to do anything. Sally runs. She just immediately is just sort of Now, like, of course, she runs to the wrong place. She runs to the White House seeking help. And it's like, no, Sally, you went to the wrong place. But and then she, she went to the gas that. station. Oh, uh-huh. my favorite bit. Um, not the gas station, but itself. 
even though that is pretty freaky, but my favorite bit falls that when um the gas station guy How takes her. How can you talk her, about his ha- having a favorite bit? When the gas station guy takes her to the house, and the first thing he does is he bickers to the hitchhiker for uh, how Loverface sawed through the door during one of the previous scenes. Yeah, and see, now that is that is good. I have to say that. So you've got this absolute carnage going on. And, of course, uh, the gas station, the owner of the gas station, who is the, one of the brothers, you've got, these are three brothers. Leatherface, who is the butcher and the cook, the hitchhiker, who is the artist, and the proprietor of the owner of the gas station, who is the older brother. He's like the father figure. Uh, he's the kind of businessman who's yelling and screaming at everybody and abusing everybody in general for being idiots. Yeah. I just loved it when he went and he was like, look at what your brother did to the door. You know, that's just, you yeah, know. That... That's what matters to him. It's like he comes upon the door when he returns to the house and and Leatherface had cut it with his chainsaw. Leatherface is just sort of like making these weird sounds because he can't really talk. He's mentally not all there. Upstairs in the house, finally, is where we get the psycho element because you've got what at first you think are two dead people. You think grandma and grandpa or mom and dad are sitting up there totally desiccated, and and it's psycho. Mm-hmm. So you immediately go to Norman Bates and, and, his he, and his mother. I hate that movie. I hate Psycho. I know everybody loves Psycho. I don't like Psycho. I think there are some great moments in it when Norman is trying to get rid of the car in the lake and it won't go down at first. It starts to sink and then it it sits there for a minute and Norman kind of stands there like, oops, I put the car in the lake, it's not going to sink. There are some wonderful parts and that was funny as can be. And Perkins is great in it. The skeletal mother sitting in the attic that's just so it's not scary it just feels ridiculous the thing that's important is the mother and father aren't dead they're basically vampires what happened to the mother and father if the grandfather is sitting up there what happened to the mother and father they probably that's ate never, them that's never answered did they run away okay. i think grandmother is dead sally goes to the white house she finds Leatherface there. She realizes this is not a safe place. She's inside. She crashes through the window. She gets out. She runs to the gas station looking for help. The older brother, she doesn't know this, says he's going to get his truck. He's going to take her to go get help. And instead, he ties her up and all that. He takes her back to the White House. And she's muffled screaming on the floor all the time. She doesn't stop. They're going to have dinner now. They're going to go through this really insane ritual of having dinner. And Sally's kind of the guest. After she first feeds the grandfather, they bring the grandfather down from the upstairs room. And you think he's dead. Yes, you think that this guy is dead. But then they cut her finger and they insert her finger in his mouth and he sucks it. And he starts like doing these weird baby motions. You know how like when babies, they do like the thing where their arms and legs sort of go around? Yeah. He does that, and it's really creepy because it's sort of like he's suckling the blood out like a baby. But you know, it's just plain absurdism, and then you get here, you get to the dinner, and it's kind of oh, like... Oh, the plain, dinner seems great. It's plain absurdism, but it's also just so grotesque. The dinner scene, if the film already didn't win you with some of the eerie stuff it was pulling off, that is like the big moment because it is 20 minutes of a constant mental downward spiral. It is just... One 
bit of insanity after another. Except nothing is really happening. And Sally's in the armchair with the arms that are never even pointed out. I don't think they even have a shot of her looking at the arms and going, ah, oh my God, I've got arms underneath my arms. She is the dinner guest. It's very theatrical. And you've got Leatherface, who is now dressed as a woman. Which also fits into the whole cook thing. It's the family situation where this is their family. Basically, they torture her by suggestion, just verbally. She's trying to... They they mock her crying and stuff like that. They mock her. And, and they go in and out of her, of her face. Like, they move close to her, but they never, like, uh-huh. get to where they could physically hurt her. They just sort of constantly just mess with her mind. They're messing with her mind, and it's verbal abuse. Nothing is happening as far as physically, except for she's bound to this chair. And then they decide that withered old Texan Nosferatu grandfather should bash her head in. Old grandpa. Who's basically a living corpse. And and this is so absurd. This could not be alive. And by absurd, we mean absurdist, not like... Yeah, Dumb. I mean absurdist. Just absurdism. to clarify for people who don't know, we mean absurdist as in the Beckett's and the Ionescos and stuff like that. They go through this, Grandpa used to be the best at killing cows or people, and give Grandpa the hammer and let him do her in. And, and he they can't... puppet him around like they move his arm and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's because of this that Sally ends up being able to get away when you don't see how she could have possibly ever gotten away. And they don't even really notice at first, they just... There's actually a thing I read where um, they originally wanted to have an extended scene where when she broke out the window, when she got out of the house that second time, uh, Toby Hooper originally wanted to have like this long shot of the whole family looking up a broken window, realizing if they messed up. The whole thing is like when they brought her back to the house and she was all tied up, you didn't see how she could ever possibly get away from this situation. But they untied her, so she's sitting down at the chair. Ties progressively come undone. And they're not even pointed out that they're coming undone. She probably doesn't even notice until they pull her out of the chair. I think it's the audience. They don't make a big thing of it with the audience, where the audience you know, is going, oh, well, the ties are undone. Now she can get away, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of thing. They finally get her down with Grandpa. She takes the chance. She gets away. Slams through a window again. She goes through a second window. She runs down to the street and it's daylight yeah you had no idea that it was daylight until she crashes through the window this has gone all all night so now it's daylight she runs to the road and what pulls up but a big truck it's a cattle truck though mm-hmm. a black mariah it's called black mariah now okay. you know what a black mariah is what a Black Mariah is a name sometimes used for police fan. What did the movie start off with? The slaughterhouse, mm-hmm. the cattle, all that. So you've got the you've got the cattle truck that pulls up. The hitchhiker he flashes a peace sign to the cattle truck before it runs him over. Someone pointed that out. Oh really? Yes. I did not notice that. Someone pointed it out, and once you see it, you just can't unsee it. Okay, that would be funny. Yeah. What I was wondering was why the why the truck did not proceed. You know, once Sally climbs into the truck, why the guy did not go, oh, crazy man out here trying to get in with a saw. Why does he not continue driving on instead of fleeing out the other door, the passenger door with Sally? Can you answer that for me? I read through it, and some people say that apparently truck motors, they start off kind of slow, and that oh. hypothetically Loverface could have gone into the back. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I figured they had to have a reason. There's so many things that are just so absurd, and you, you don't even think of explanations, but then there are other things that are so reasonable. That is the thing about this film, is it builds this sense of complete reality around everything that is happening. Horrible Texas heat, these gas stations. I've been to these gas stations in the 1970s. I've had bizarre things happen and you where you have... just wanted to get away, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, I'm back in the car, drive fast. Get away from here now. Get away. Mm-hmm. The truck driver and Loverface begin a little fight. The truck driver hits Loverface in the head with a wrench, like a, a wrench. monkey wrench. And Loverface saws himself through the leg, but he stands up. I've read that's the only time you see somebody cut, but that's not the only time you see somebody cut because yeah. you have the hitchhiker who cuts himself on the palm first. He mm-hmm. hurts himself first. Why? He turns out to have a straight edge razor on him. Mm-hmm. Instead, he takes Franklin's knife and he cuts himself. Mm-hmm. Why did he cut himself with Franklin's knife? What's the meaning there? There's going to be a reason for that, and I don't know the reason for that. Then Franklin gets his knife back. He's already got his straight edge. At the end of that scene, he ends up cutting Franklin. And the other cut you have is when they cut into Sally's, Sally's finger. finger. You see those three cuts before then. I think you could technically say that it's the first time you actually see like the chainsaw go through flesh on screen. Appear to go through flesh. Yeah. So you do have three cuts before then. You've got the palm. You've got Franklin being cut on his arm. And we see Sally's finger being cut. Mm -hmm. And finally, we see the only time we see the chainsaw going into Leatherface's leg. Yeah. And then a pickup truck arrives. It pulls up, and Sally clambers into it. There's the getaway with Sally back in the back of the pickup truck, screaming and screaming. Well, I think it's easily one of the best shots in the film. What? Leatherface dancing with the chainsaw. That is a strong ending. You know how I'm a wicker man? You know, you have like that long shot of the sun after the mm-hmm. wicker man falls mm-hmm. when it's on fire. That's like that for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Loverface dancing at the chainsaw. After everything in the movie, that mm-hmm. is the best way to end the film. And so that makes that shot really kind of special. But Sally had every right to scream from oh, yeah. the moment that she met Leatherface. That it made, on. it made the paranoia and dread of the dinner scene just more effective. It's what creates the anxiety. Yeah. Sally's nonstop screaming. You could look at that as being the music. If you want to look at the soundtrack, the the soundtrack is Sally's screaming. Mm Mm-hmm non-stop screaming and the weird like mocking and bickering between family members yeah. where like going back and forth from verbal abuse to complaining about something to one another you know you you technically can't even really make out what they're saying eventually because they just start screaming vulgarities at each other in like yeah, kind of an incomprehensible manner thank goodness there's no music in this nowadays they'd have music all behind it that would totally ruin it well i would say that the the industrial sound designs of the soundtrack of a film because that's more like noise. Yeah, that is. So we were talking about Poltergeist afterwards a little bit. Then I thought, what did he do before this, I was wondering. I went and I found when he was 21 years of age, in 1964, he had done this film called The Heisters. And that's the one that we first watched. It was weird. It was 10 minutes. The big question for me is where in the world did he get the money it was his this first together. movie, student film, filmed in widescreen in 1960-something. It had, it had sets. 
it had costumes. It had it props. Had pr- major props. I it mean, had, where did he get the money for this? It had pyrotechnics. Yes. Yes. Where? I don't know. That was the big question He for was me. able to, with his short film, he was able to accurately recreate the look of a hammer film. The thing starts off as three thieves, and they're running through the woods. They're not like Sally running through the woods, but they're running through they're the woods. They're more Robin Hoodish. She was influenced by Hammer films. They're dressed in Hammer film costumes, except they don't remind me of Hammer films. You know what they remind me of? It reminds me of the two villains in Tom Thumb, the movie Tom Thumb from 1956 uh, with Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers is one of the villains. And, and the guy from Twin Peaks. He played Tom Thumb. No, I'm sorry. It's 1958. I thought it was 1956. Russ Tamblin. Russ Tamblin. The other villain is Terry Thomas. So you have Peter Sellers as Antony and Terry Thomas as Ivan. These three in the heisters remind me a lot of them once again it's totally absurd it's kind of surreal after they're running through the woods they get to the place where they're going to split up their money they walk in taxidermy bizarre sculptured weird taxidermy it's they like, had like this a taxidermy almost, music box it's a taxidermy kind of music box but you can't tell what the animal might have been or anything it's it's like it's like some weird creature conglomerate anticipating the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Absolutely, it anticipates this. And, and I just wonder, I wonder what man. he had in his home. I, you know, it's like, who, what, what, did, what? I mean, because th- this is a long spell there from yeah. 1964 with this kind of thing there. Did he do morbid sculpture? Did he do stuff out of bones? But this is not bones. This is something else entirely that's done for this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the gingerbread man cannibal bit. And then you had already, just like in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you had the cannibalism of the human beings. You have one of the guys, one of the guys sits men. down. And they show you you're supposed to be repulsed by this, that you're supposed to experience this. This is eating real people because he's eating these gingerbread men cookies. And one of the heisters is totally horrified by this. And he pulls out little bits of bone from the gingerbread men. First, the guy's horrified, and then he pulls out a bone. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre is down the road. He's already, you've got a cannibal there. Then you split up the money, and then somebody takes the jewels. Then you have a sword fight, and you've got a one of A guy who's making a, a beetle doing, grow? Doing something, making a beetle grow, and it goes back down and grows. And then he, the guy who's doing the beetle, he blows everything up. Because the beetle wouldn't become small again. That's it. It's shot to look like a trailer. Well, it's, they describe it as being a preview. That's true. It's described as being a preview. But it's kind of like surreal absurdism, and there's no... It's like a Looney Tunes cartoon. It's, a, it's like a Looney Tunes cartoon. There's not much point to it as far as you can't sit there and go, oh, well, this represents that, and this represents... There's nothing like that. It really was the kind of film where you just sort of watch, and throughout most of it, you just go, what? I was sitting there going, oh, that's going to show up in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was the one going, what? Because it was just sort of like, it was one of those movies. Uh-huh. What you don't know, because you weren't a little kid... In the early 1960s, just how scary some of those made-for-children films could be. 
that would have the villains, you know, where you could see something like this, where you would have these villains through a child's eyes, seeing some of these movies like Tom Thumb, different fairy tale things, they could be really frightening, very disturbing. Let me put it another way, not so much frightening, it's not like you're sitting there like, oh, I'm scared, unsettling, a very dark feeling underneath it all. And you don't believe me. Because you're thinking Disney. It's not like Disney. No, no. You've got the... You're talking about like I never experienced it. Mom, when I watched Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger when I was a little kid, I couldn't even be in the same room when he had the scenes of Bumble the Snowman. You remember that? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Because I, re- I remember when I was a little kid and just how frightening Bumble was. He was. He Bumble's was bounce. When you're five years old, Bumble is frightening. But this is different. Bumble is made to be frightening in a certain way. It's not the same as the kind of sinister you could have in some of these films. You like Wicked Witch of the West? Although that was frightening too, because I remember when I was little just how frightening that could be. The flying monkeys were terrifying to me. It's funny that people could actually say that flying monkeys were terrifying. In real life, flying monkeys would be scary because monkeys are mean. But they were terrifying. Now, I'm thinking of something else. This is based on Hammer, but it goes beyond what was happening in Hammer. He found the bone in the gingerbread man cookie. Now, the thing about Toby Hooper was it turned out he also did experimental documentaries. He did two of them. He next did Down Friday Street. He did that one next, and then after um, Eggshells, he did another experimental documentary, which I couldn't find. Down Friday Street was 1966, and Toby was down in Austin. He was teaching, he was a professor down there, and he was doing documentaries. This was an experimental documentary. It's really well done, but it starts out all the neon of downtown, old neon signs and old storefronts. And then he gets into showing these absolutely remarkable houses in Austin. They're beautiful houses of these different styles of architecture. It's not like travelogue showing something. It's an experimental way of showing these things. And it gets more and more using sound. It's like, okay, where are we going? The sound is getting very uncomfortable. It turns into a kind of gentrification film. Bulldozers. Because you get the bulldozers. They're going through the houses that are being torn apart. You get the shots of skyscrapers. New Austin's, the big concrete stretches of parking lots, highways filled with one gas station after another, after little shopping strips and things like that, where it's just these signs. They have like a brief cutaway to like this sharp bit of wood sticking out from yeah, the house. Yeah, I remember house. that. You have a sound effect accompanying that, which was a lot like when you had the scene where um, Pam had the meat hook put through the back of her oh, head. Oh, really? Very sort of similar tone to it. This was an experimental film. It was beautifully done. You don't have any idea that's going to turn into a, where you have got gentrification killing Austin. You, at first you think you're going to get a travel log. When you see the neon signs and, and enough of downtown, you think it's just going to be more shots of Austin. You don't know that it's going to turn into what it turns into. And then you get eggshells in 1969. And this is when the big shocker comes in. Because that was a shock for you. It was not a shock for me. The, t- when I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre at night, I thought it was industrial because you have the industrial audioscape made from the animal slaughtering stuff. You have the emphasis on slaughterhouse stuff. You have the elements of, well, I guess you could say is true crime because it was based loosely on Ed Gein and stuff like that. And it has this emphasis on 
murder and crime. The subject matter almost feels like something they would hear in a Throbbing Gristle or Monty Kazasa kind of song or something. Even the visuals of the film itself were sort of later adopted by the small scene of industrial film with some of the shorts that Pierre Christofferson made like Death Wish. Plot twist is... Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not an industrial film. So it's you're, a hippie you're, movie. You're, you're familiar with industrial films, which I am not. So I, I saw one of them. Most of them are lost. That's the thing that's kind of funny about it. With these industrial movies, there's only really two that I've seen that I can say, which are Death Wish, which was in Psychic TV's first transmission, and Decoder. Most of those films are actually missing. There was a old magazine thing from the 80s or something. It included like a thing about some of these industrial filmmakers. Because as a guy, he was described as making at least eight short films. Or eight features, actually. I forgot which it was exactly. But they're all marked as being stolen. Like someone stole all of his movies at some point. That's one thing about this early industrial stuff. You can't really find that much of it anymore because a lot of it was either performance art or some of it was apparently just flat out stolen from the original creators or something. Okay, I'm totally unfamiliar with it. But yeah, so Decoder is actually more straightforward. It was based loosely on an essay written by Burroughs, but it's about... Oh, okay. It's set in the future where a guy who works at a fast food restaurant, he engineers noise and realizes how Muzak is being used to mentally influence the customers. And so he essentially starts a terror attack by playing harsh noise in his fast food place. Are these horror, f- um, horror Decoder, films? Decoder isn't horror. Death Wish is more down the line of horror. It's a harder to find film. It was only available in Psychic TV's first transmission, which was like this video compilation, which was hosted by Derek Jarman of all people. Death Wish, it's technically an early found footage movie because it was filmed under the guise of being police document footage. The film depicts the events of this scientist who is creating some kind of electro device and it's not exactly known why he's doing it, but the footage is essentially filmed as being this video of him picking people up off the streets and putting these electrodes into their bodies for surgery. Oh, you know what this does remind me of? I don't know why it just pops into my head. One thing I did want to say about Texas Chainsaw Massacre is what struck me after I had seen it yeah. the first time, especially, which is the time when I was watching it more for what I expected to see and Mm -hmm. what I didn't see, okay? Mm -hmm. Is that here I had not seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre all those years because of what I anticipated from it. And yet when Taxi Driver came out, I was right there. And Taxi Driver was a landmark film as far as violence goes, the kind of violence that it showed. This harrowing end scene of just horrible violence except it's so artfully done and they censored it too because he originally shot it in a different color it was way more vivid but they actually forced Uh him to turn down the color in the scene so here i had seen taxi driver and that i was fine with that until you were born i could tolerate certain kinds of horror and i could tolerate taxi driver and certain things like that and then something happened to me chemically when you were born and my ability to tolerate certain things just went through the floor. I couldn't do it. We're talking about little bits of certain kinds of tension that would never have gotten to me before. You could just have nothing going on, just anticipation. All it was would be anticipation. It would be like, okay, I have to cover my eyes, or okay, I have to get up and leave the room. You tell me what's kind of going on while, you know, and then I, and then I will come back in. Be like, okay, you tell me when it's okay for me to come back in. I changed chemically, and I just could not abide certain kinds of 
tension and that kind of anticipation. Also, I went through a phase, there was a time when I almost died. I was so sick that I almost died. I had surgery and all of that. And that kind of put me off. I could not watch certain kinds of films after that for a while. It brought it back too much. Well, I know that you kind of hate then, the Warhol Frankenstein film for that reason. That was because your dad had this horrible accident. We were not long married. It was within our first year of marriage. He was working at a greenhouse big greenhouses, glass roofs and everything else, and there had been a storm. I went to pick him up at the greenhouse. The owner came out, and he had these blood-soaked towels he was carrying. And I was like, well, where's Marty? And he said, he's at the hospital. I was like, what happened? Nobody had called me. What had happened is that the storm had loosened a pane of glass so that it fell out of the roof of the greenhouse, and it struck your dad's neck and it split just right it split in half and in that split a piece of glass also chipped away so that it fit right over his jugular vein so his neck was cut it was completely cut except for where his jugular vein was so a lot of blood he had these major stitches from that that made it so i could not see certain films after that like we went to see warhol's Frankenstein and after a certain point it was like I cannot I cannot do this anymore because I'm looking at your dad's neck it's got that huge scar I mean just from one end to the other it's it, you can't hardly even see it anymore now but it, back then it was just terrible and there are certain movies that are very difficult for me to see and so I could not see Frankenstein the thing that made Deathwish kind of infamous was it shot in this found footage type of style. It opens up a disclaimer saying that the footage was forwarded to the Los Angeles Police Department and that they didn't recognize any of the subjects involved. Mm -hmm. After one sequence where you see someone die from overexposure to the electrodes, there is a 10-minute castration scene. Okay, we don't... <sighs> and that's oh, right. and it's what that's... the film ends on. Not that many people know that it was directed by Peter Christofferson. And the thing with Peter is... He was actually a pretty big photographer. He was in Throbbing Gristle, he was the co-founder of Coil, and he did the album artwork for several Pink Floyd records. Uh-huh. When Psychic TV's first transmission was digitized and put on the web, people didn't know that he directed that segment. So according to um, the Industrial Handbook, it was a short film that Christopherson filmed with Monty Cazassa. And it has some major Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of vibes to it. Like, I would consider, if anything, it's sort of like the successor to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to some extent in that it takes the things that made that film really uncomfortable and transmits it to the age of video because it was all shot on Super 8, transferred to VHS. It looks like found footage. I, I asked. I was the one who asked. I said, what's industrial film? But yeah, I that's was, industrial film. Asked, yeah. But we need to get back to eggshells. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre built a very real framework for what happened. Texas heat, the way they behaved in the van before the hitchhiker, certain things that were done that built a very realistic atmosphere. This is a world you know nothing about and you will never know anything about, and it's like the most incredible document. Yes, it's fiction. Some people describe it as being sci-fi. Some people describe it as being kind of horror, when really it's neither. It's not even fantasy. Once again, it's an absurdist 
surreal kind of combination set within this very realistic framework so that if you were from Austin of that period, it's going to take you back to the counterculture there. Hollywood has people dressed in a certain way counterculture, and it has them living a certain way counterculture, and it doesn't really ever show exactly what it was like. It doesn't show enough of it, and it's not authentic enough. And I know these places. This was from 1969, and places like these were still around in the 70s, but we never lived in such a nice kind of rundown place. (laughs) We always lived in duplexes, you know, houses that had been split up, but there would be these old houses. You had old houses that were around, you'd rent, and you'd have plenty of space. Like if you're an artist, and see, this is what's interesting to me, is you had two couples living in this house, and this one guy, one of the women, she's a sculptor, and that took me right back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It opens up with this w- woman arriving in town in the back of a pickup truck. Yep. Maybe it literally it, opens on the ending of Texas Chainsaw, Chainsaw Massacre. That's oh. the thing about the film. I would look over your shoulder a couple times while watching, and I would just sort of go, That's right. You did not watch this, this film. Right. Why is this so Texas Chainsaw Massacre-like? It's just sort of like, literally, every time I would look over your shoulder, I would just immediately go, Oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And maybe they all rode around in the back of pickup trucks. I don't know. There's an anti-war protest going on. He makes a point of showing police officers actually behaving in a friendly manner with protesters. Uh And this is important because of some things that happen later on in the film. Okay. You go from the protest, you go to the house. The house, I forgot to mention, it's this white house. It is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house, but not. It's got the porch. You've got shots where the way that it depicts it, this is duplicated with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house. Mm -hmm. He duplicated these shots. What's wonderful is you've got this authentic counterculture house you've got the art all around because you had room to do art and you had artists living there you've got these students who are living there this is the kind of places that students would live in they're sharing this house i did once live in a situation when i was 17 i rented a room from one guy this was a place that was chopped up into like four different apartments but we pretty much had the second floor but you get this incredible sense of space it's run down yes although they had a great bathtub in this. All the places that we live in have been like 100 years old, but they're apartment buildings. With you, we've always lived in apartment buildings, except for the very first the house. Very first house. Once again, that was a duplex. Old house, 100 years old, but it was a duplex, but it had great space. But it wasn't like one of these houses where you've got the upstairs and the downstairs and just tons of room, and you had red walls. Down through the hallway, you had the red wall in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So much was duplicated from this and put into Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was the morbid mockery of it. But you start out, finally get into where they're sharing ghost stories over dinner. And I was kind of uncertain about this, where at the end she marries this guy. She's talking about this place that she rented. I was kind of uncertain whether it was this place or another place. I have to admit that. Because these were conversations they're kind of half-grabbed. They start, they kind of entered into them as they were going on. The sound quality is intentionally not very good. You don't have any surrounding conversation at times to give you an idea of what's going on. And she's talking about when they went and they opened the cistern, it was full of trash and there were two boots sticking out at the top. She went and she told the landlady, the landlady said, oh, you can't open that, don't open that. And the next time she looked there, 
all the trash was gone. And so she was convinced that the landlady had killed her lover and buried the lover in the trash in the cistern. So that was her story. She was convinced of this, and the place had a ghost. It sounded like she was talking about another place, but it must be the place that they're renting. I could be wrong about that. She's a sculptress. Once again, you've got the guy in Texas Chainsaw Massacre who does all these sculptures. She's a sculptor. She, She talks about how the sculpting made her not scared. She wasn't scared of whatever noises she heard because she was working. You're shown it's a spooky house. You see a smoky presence down in the basement. Then another conversation where she's talking about repression of news. She has this belief that people were bayoneted at the march. She thought 10 people were bayoneted at the march. She's talking about this and that this news had been repressed. Now we're talking about Kent State. You had people who were killed at Kent State. So she's convinced, however, that you had people who were bayoneted at this march. But Kent State hadn't even occurred yet. Kent State took place in May of 1970, May 4th, 1970. And this film is from 1969. And they have a party. Everything is so real. The people who show up for the party, the clothes they're wearing, the hairstyles, everything is so authentic. But then you get this guy who goes down to the basement and he meets whatever the entity is. He just comes into contact with this presence. He ends up battling himself with a sword fight, right? He finds a sword leaning up against the wall, which duplicates the sword fight from the heisters. We see that there's this hole in the wall and there's this light, so something is down there in the basement. Some of the underlying darkness in the film is the chauvinism. You end up having these little bits of conversation where the woman is, who's going to get married to this guy, she's talking about how she does everything for him. And she's kind of complaining. He acts like there's no option. He's not going to change. When she's trying on then her wedding dress, and she's asking one of the other men who lives there, looking at her, and he's very disapproving. So he talks about how disappointed in her he is because she's getting all into this. He disapproves of the marriage. He disapproves of the wedding dress. It's like, well, do you not like the wedding dress? No, he's, the wedding dress is just fine. And she says, oh, if I was washing dishes. If she is washing dishes, it would be just fine. And he's like, yeah, it'll be just fine if you're washing dishes. There's a sense of the same kind of chauvinism that transfers over to the Leatherface household. We might as well just go to the end. There's this machine that they carry with them from the basement. They carry it to a park, and they set it up. And it is actually, it's an ancient hair dryer. doesn't look like a hair dryer. Except that it has these caps that lower down on these people's heads. It looks like something from Doctor Who that they would use to teleport or something. And so they set up this big machine and they put and, garbage bags and over they their put heads. garbage bags over their heads they sit down in these chairs and these garbage bags over their heads are like shrouds and then they put the caps on and then they shrivel up into these garbage bags so that their bodies disappear and kind of like what would be flesh and blood comes pouring out of a faucet i thought it was is, like curd coffee that has been attached to this machine pours out of this machine which leaves then this smoke, just like what's in the basement. This smoke comes drifting up, which is what's left of them and goes floating off. As best as I can tell, based on the wedding and these people getting together, they're they're turning middle class. They're getting away from their hippie roots. They're getting married. They're doing what's considered socially acceptable. And I guess that's, that's the... Ascension? 
<laughs> yeah, the socially acceptable middle class that's in the process of taking place that's going to happen through marriage and as best as I can tell. Now, I want to say this for a viewer. Picture all this looking exactly like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. These are all somehow long-lost scenes from a film from some subplot. You've got these bits, but it doesn't... The It has the it, same sort of visual it, sensibility. It, some of it does. I have to say that, no, the cinematography is entirely different. Style of editing is completely different. Mm -hmm. We're only talking four short years. The way people are attired and hairstyle, completely different. Mm-hmm. Because things happened fast back then. You moved from style to style to style within a year. You went through different styles. And you could go have something be gone, out of fashion, don't ever wear that again within a matter of months. You look at it and you realize this is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's older brother that went to Woodstock. Except there's nothing bloody in it until the very end. If you look upon that as being blood. I thought it was coffee. Well, yeah, you know, whatever. If it was David Lynch, it'd be coffee. Here's my theory. If you take Dale Cooper and smush him, only coffee would come out. Well, the thing is, is that you didn't even watch the film. I'm the one who sat and watched this film and was transfixed by it. It is this time capsule of this place. You've got so much of this vibe. You've got the vibe of these people living together, but they've got a great bathtub. You would never have had that bathtub. It was perfect. The porcelain inside, it was absolutely pristine. And the faucet on that thing was just expensive. You would never have had a bathtub like that. But the bathroom itself was kind of torn up. The walls were torn up, everything else. That's one of the great things about these old houses. You could go in there and you could do anything with them as far as painting them because you had peeling wallpaper. So you could go in and do whatever you wanted to as far as paint whatever you wanted on the walls, graffiti them, do whatever you wanted to. But you would not have had that bathtub. That's a big deal for me. The one deal breaker for me, that bathtub. Eggshells. I wonder why they called it eggshells. Because it was a Tuesday. Because it was a Tuesday. Weren't we supposed to talk about poltergeist also? Oh, but we've been talking long enough. Yeah. There's, and what are we going to say? I'll tell you the one thing that that film convinced me of is that I've always heard there was nothing of Toby in Poltergeist. Uh-huh. I have to say, I have not seen that many of Spielberg's films. He is not my favorite director, and I have kind of stayed away from a lot of his work. I just have not been inclined to see it. But being familiar with a few films when I saw Poltergeist, with the exception of a couple of things, I felt like, oh, this is so Spielberg. And so when I read about people saying that he was given his directing it, but it was Spielberg who really did it. I could purchase that, except for... A, the face-melting scene? Yeah, the face-melting scene. That was like, oh... But there was something different about it. It was just kind of thrown in there, where it just didn't feel like it really fit with the rest of the film. I don't know who's responsible for that. After seeing Eggshells, I see parts of Toby in Poltergeist. I can see him directing this. That doesn't mean that Spielberg wasn't the big heavy hand and he had final say over the edits that doesn't mean that he wasn't there just guiding everything but i can feel i think some of toby's i'm not vision. sure still like there's something about the presentation of it in general which still is like the sort of spielberg stuff i just don't like at all like 
the way they handled the ghosts in it, it may as well be aliens in E.T. Yes, but at the same time, if you had seen the way that they did the portals in the film, they had portals in that eggshell basement Yeah, that reminded me a lot of Poltergeist. The things I didn't like about Poltergeist were obviously Spielberg's doings, like mm-hmm. the way the ghosts were handled, which was so Disney movie-esque, where it's like, most of the ghosts are our friends, but this one's the mean one, and it took your daughter. And you hear, like, the daughter go, no, help me, you know, from the fleshy abyss, yeah. you know, since for some reason, apparently, the gateway to the ghost realm looks like someone's intestine or something. Yeah, well, the, the uh, very idea of the film, this presence in the static, that was brilliant. In a way, I don't even want to really get into that. This is a Texas Chainsaw Massacre discussion, mm-hmm. and his other films before that, that was, though, absolutely brilliant. And the ending was just so funny, taking the TV and pushing it outside the motel room. (laughs) I have to say, with Spielberg, you get a wonderful expression of certain aspects of what that suburbia would be. The ability to communicate this family in suburbia. I liked Poltergeist when it came out, except for certain things that I thought were kind of hokey. But as far as the main idea, I really liked but so, no, I don't feel like we really need to discuss Poltergeist, yeah. other than, like I wanted to mention, I think you can feel some of Toby in there. I have not seen anything else of his after Texas Chainsaw Massacre other than Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any other films of his except for the things that came before Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I actually don't really know what to make of his later films. The main one that seems to especially come up sometimes was he directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. And he did that one as a comedy. Did he get trapped in, this is the one that I made so much money on, and this is what's expected of me? Did he just do I or? legitimately have no idea. Like, he had his experimental beginnings, but then just about everything he did afterward. There were a couple of non-horror films, but most of them were horror. I know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. it's supposed to be insane. From what I heard, he was contracted to do a sequel for a film. He directed as a comedy, and the studio hated it for that reason. And then after that, New Line Cinema bought the rights of the film and tried to make it into a franchise in live Nightmare on Elm Street or something. Was it left a comedy, or was it recut? So it was made. It was... A, it was left as a comedy. They okay. couldn't edit around the stuff they were doing, like completely off the walls. All right. I think they basically went into borderline Frank Henenlotter kind of territory where it was like something from Basket Case or Frankenhooker or something like that. Just zany comedy horror type of stuff. Yeah. He did some film of John Carpenter at one point, Body Bags. John Carpenter acted, and I know that for certain. He does a great job as far as with Eggshells and Texas Chainsaw Massacre as capturing something of the time. I mean, yeah, it's complete absurd, you know, you go into complete absurdism, but... He does a great job of capturing some atmosphere and certain things you just don't want to see again. I forgot where I heard it, but I remember people saying the Manson murders were like the shocking end of the hippie era. Yeah. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre could sort of be like that. The sort of hippie era cinematic equivalent to like the Manson murders. That sort of shock between hippie culture and grizzly. Not um, not the events, but more or less like the tone. Like the end of the 60s. Except it's already ended. 
by the time you're in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's gone. You don't have anything left to finish off. All of that has ended, and you're beyond all that. Since we haven't watched the other films, I don't know if he had other films that served as really effective time capsules that really caught something very authentic for the time instead of it being just Hollywood. Poltergeist, I'm sorry. That's true. That's Hollywood. Everything has a kind of gloss over it. You've got the shiny paint. Yeah, and you have, like, the clear-set good guys and bad guy kind of dynamic. Yeah. Well, if Texas Chainsaw Massacre... Oh, like, with Texas Chainsaw well, Massacre, was, you don't have that? Oh, well, come with on. With Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and, you don't have the good guys. And the, and the thing is... The world is just going to hell in that film. What's wrong with Sally? What's wrong with any of these okay, people well, that I mean, get murdered? Like, you don't have, like, the superhero character to come in. You just have these characters who are working on their basic wits... While in the middle of hell. You Nobody know? gets a chance to operate on basic wits except Sally. for Sally. That's what I mean. She's Sally, she's going off one. her wits while in hell pretty much. What was I going to say? And you interrupted me. The, the truck driver? No, not about the truck driver, but about um, the dynamic with these people trying to back up, back up, back up. <laughs> oh, I remember. You were talking about Spielberg and how Spielberg manipulated emotions. And you did not like Spielberg because he manipulated emotions. And I went, huh, what wasn't manipulated emotionally in Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I mean, seriously. Hmm? Spielberg is Saturday morning cartoons while Texas Chainsaw Massacre was looking at the aftermath of a crime scene photo and just filling in whatever horrible stuff led up to it. That's my... Anyway, it is a great film. I have to say that it makes me deeply uncomfortable. You had to take a break. I I remember I did have to take a break once, but I can't remember exactly when that was. It was closer to the ending when stuff really started to go haywire. And that's even with my knowing from my having watched it that one time previously that you don't see what I expect to see. If you haven't seen it before and you are expecting to see a certain thing, you don't see that. It's like Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange is always talked about how violent it is. And it does have violent scenes. I'm not saying it doesn't. You've got the rape scene. But as far as the gang violence, that's a dance. It's a ballet. When the Catwoman, when Alex assaults her, you don't see it. You're Mm -hmm. shown a cartoon. You have implied violence. It's more the discomfort of the implied violence. Plus, it had penises everywhere, so I think that probably had a good bit to do with it. Anyway, did Texas Chainsaw Massacre deserve an X rating because of implied violence? Was there enough of a message there for it to counter? Aren't X ratings mainly for pornography? I'm talking about back then. It got an X rating. I think it was the sculpture as much as anything else, the morbid sculpture, the bones. They actually somehow made bones freaky while... In five, when you had the skeletons everywhere, you're like, oh my god. Well, they made animal skins, just plain old animal skins that you can pick up from a craft shop that covered the walls. They made that look freaky, even though it was just plain old animal skins from a craft shop. Well, think about all the places that have deer heads hanging from walls. Or buffalo heads. Even though it's more freaky to people if you strip the skin off and put the skeleton up there, that's somehow more freaky to people than just this deer head. So do we have anything else to say about Texas Chainsaw Massacre except that you love it, 
I think it's a very well-made film. I think you can approach it probably on many different levels. I can imagine times when I would be comfortable with it because when you strip away any of the realism, which is really easy to do to strip away any idea of this realism because it is so absurd. I have one thing to say. Yeah, what? You like the things you eat better when you don't think about them. They said something like that. Oh, really? Did they? They were talking about shooting the animals with the guns, and the woman was like, stop it. I think Franklin does say something to the effect of, well, you like the things you eat when you don't think about them. It just makes it even funnier when he realizes how the Texas Chainsaw Massacre really is a hippie film because to some extent, it can be seen as a hippie vegetarian film. Yeah. When I looked up on Letterboxd, the first review I saw was someone saying, yeah, I should probably consider going back to veganism. I can't remember which film it was that you watched when you were six years of age when it suddenly hit home for you that you were eating cow when you were eating beef. You asked about it. You said, so this is what is in my chili and it was like yes this is what's in your chili i was thinking okay is this when he turns vegetarian and you had this little thoughtful look on your face like oh this is bad but then you looked like okay i'm going to have to live with this and you continued to eat chili i think i remember what it was we had a vhs which was some dinosaur movie or something Uh uh-huh it's time for us to stop. <laughs> there are some movies that I have not set eyes on since you were little. We had one VHS, which I think came with a toy or something. It was this weird CG animated film. You and Dad constantly were like trying to throw it out because the film was terrible. It was boring. The thing that was funny about it was I was sort of mesmerized by it because it was so boring that caused me to cease thinking for a moment in this sort of weirdly John Paul Sartre meditative kind of stance. Being in nothingness, being so bored that I just sort of ceased to exist for like an hour. I would willingly just be like, okay, I'm going to stop existing for like an hour and 30 minutes. I think it was just like one of those things where I had no clue what it was. And I was just sort of fascinated by the fact that it caused me to sort of cease existing for a while. Okay. I can't think of anything else to say about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm glad we decided to discuss it because that way I ended up watching Eggshells. That adds such a dimension to Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well as the heisters. Do we say just goodbye? We're done? So we will wish everybody well and say that we will see them in a week. Or let's not even end it that way. That's a silly ending. Just say. Let's just talk about how we're going to end it. We could okay. end it that way. We could end it that way. No, let's talk. We could end this by naming off possible endings from a podcast. We could end it by highlighting the fact that our upstairs neighbors are really noisy and they're walking around again. I think we have covered the subject as best as we can for this podcast and it's time to just flip the switch